Hey dog people of the internet, welcome to Cog Dog Radio, a podcast all about dog sports, behavior, and training. I'm your host, Sarah Stremming of the Cognitive Canine, and I can't wait to share my behavior cases, training revelations, and general geekery with you. Let's get started. Today on the podcast, a conversation with Liz Joyce. Liz is a personal trainer, a dog enthusiast, and a self-proclaimed movement nerd. She's been in the fitness industry for nearly 20 years, and she's been my fitness and strength coach since April 2021. We sat down to talk about what it means to be in a teaching role or a coaching role, and I think there's something here for everyone. Heads up, Liz and I are two adults who had an adult conversation, and that means there's a little bit of adult language. Enjoy. Will you start by sharing your name and your pronouns? Yes, I am Liz Joyce and she, her. Liz, I have you here today because you really are one of the most skilled coaches I've ever experienced in any field. And I thought that we could just jam kind of coach to coach on a few things uh, that we agree our students need to be successful because we talk about this all the time. And so first though... We got to start where we got to start, which is a brief history kind of of our work together so that everybody understands why exactly our success really speaks to your coaching ability. (laughs) It all started when I emailed you this laundry list of reasons why I couldn't lift weights. The email was basically like, hi, all my friends say you're the best. Here's all the reasons this will fail. What do you think? And I cried softly and responded. (laughs) I'm just joking. Yeah, you have a, you know, you've got a few challenges that we worked through. I think the thing about that email that really stuck out to me was that you had experienced a number of, you know, really qualified professionals and physiotherapists and sports medicine doctors, and the list goes on, you know, pain management doctors. And you were going through what would be for most people a starting spot and all of it was too hard. So I thought to myself, I think she's missing the super foundation stuff of like being able to even engage her muscles properly. So you (laughs) being, you know, if you had been someone else that didn't really thoroughly understand foundations, and I know that you do because I might be your number one podcast listener, but if I'm not, I'm into the top five. So I know, I know that you know. So I thought, well, if anyone's going to buy into, you know, spending six hours of session time with me, figuring out how to do what would be, you know, just muscle engagement stuff, it would be you. And that's where we started. And it was awesome this like one time in our time together that really sticks out to me was you were on your hands and knees and I was having you do an exercise where you lift your leg up and I noticed that your head was dropping too low and you didn't have the awareness to be able to pull it up and hold it in a neutral spot. So we kind of broke all that stuff down. And now that's a regular exercise for you, those nice little chin tucks, you're good at them. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I would say that yet, but (laughs) um, this is about, for me, everything in the story that you just told is your skill of splitting behaviors down to their most fundamental parts. The people that I had worked with before, and honestly, to their credit, like, I am different probably from most of their patients. They were presenting me with what they believe to be foundation exercises. Yeah. When you present a student of any kind, dog, human, whatever it is you're teaching them, and you're presenting what you believe to be the bottom rung of the ladder, and they are not hitting the bottom rung of the ladder and they're not actually doing it correctly. It is our job as a teacher of any kind to say, well, there must be rungs beneath that one that I wasn't thinking about and what are they? 
And how can I teach you those? And I call that splitting. Dog trainers call that splitting. Animal trainers call that splitting. That was a word that you hadn't heard. I don't know what fitness trainers call that. As it (laughs) pertains to this. And so just what splitting is, is being able to break down a behavior into its smallest approximations. And that's important in dog training because dogs never know what the hell you're about, like what you're actually trying to get to. Because as far as a dog is concerned, none of these things that we teach them are something that they woke up thinking about. And so we need to really, really pare it down to its most basic parts for them. But I think our human students are owed the same thing. Yes. And I think that you were naturally aware of that. Like nobody needed to say to you, there's this thing called splitting and we want to be a splitter and not a lumper. And we don't want to lump the skills. We want to split the skills. You just looked at my head dropping in that exercise and knew that this foundational exercise was not found, was not bottom rung for me. Yeah. And I needed to split it down further. What about that do you want to share? Like what, what is important about being able to see as the coach all of the things that go into the behavior in order to break it down? Well, as a coach, when I, you know, my primary motive, and I'm sure for you too, is for our clients to have success. So I think the thing that is really magic in all of this, training people and also dogs, is that you can take just most of the things that they're doing really well, but the things that need to be cleaned up a little bit, they can work on just one component at a time. And I think it's really important for people to be having their exercises and any kind of training really split up into small pieces. I feel like too much information too soon or too much of a challenging task too soon um, can be quite aversive and intimidating and just doesn't lead to a lot of confidence in the learner. And it's not a great experience and it's not as effective either. And I think also there gets to be a little bit of coach client tension sometimes when the Mm. results aren't there. And then, you know, the learner gets kind of frustrated and I think leads to a less positive experience overall. Yeah. And there's something that's really required in a teaching relationship, I think, which is that the learner actually trusts that the teacher is guiding them towards success. Mm -hmm. And I think that when people hear that, they'll be like, well, no shit, Sarah. (laughs) (laughs) But now I want you to think back to the last agility lesson you maybe had, or maybe you were in a seminar where you didn't feel that that was true, where you didn't feel that you could totally trust that the teacher was guiding you to success. The number of times, so our mutual friend, Megan Foster, is my agility coach. And she will present me with a challenge sometimes. And she'll see me get this look on my face. And then she'll say, you know, she'll say something like, you can do that. Like, I I think you can do this or something like that. And I will do it. I will do it correctly. I will, I'll have success. (laughs) And then she'll say, remember, I'm not ever setting you up to fail. Wow. She says that out loud to me because, and this is like no shade on anyone I've ever trained with for agility, but because the culture and agility at large is the opposite of that. Right. Culture of the, of, of agility at large is actually to present the handler with challenges that are outside of their skill set in an attempt to stretch the skill set. What they're trying to do is push the people into a higher skill level by throwing them into a skill set that they are not capable of. And so I completely will look at a drill and have this little tinge of fear about it Mm -hmm. because I think I'm going to get it wrong. And Megan and I have been working together like a year plus, like two years almost. And I just now 
I'm to the point where I can recognize that, like I can just identify I'm having that old feeling, but it's not relevant here. Yeah, that's huge. That's really big. And so what you're talking about is building this relationship with your learner where they trust that they're going to win. Like they're, they trust that they're going to get there. And when I talk about dogs, I talk about, I want them to think this is a game they will always win. Yeah. And how often do you tell me a thing and you're like explaining it? And I just am like, I I'm like, there's no way that I can do that. <laughs> and then, and then I totally do it. <laughs> and you're like, uh-huh. Okay. So next, next I'm going to, you're going to do this. Like, it's just, <laughs> but, the like reason all the you time? Can, but the reason you can do that Liz, like the reason you know better what I can do than I do is because my history is that I can't do it. And your history is that you know exactly what I can do and what I can't. Yeah, it's true. So, yeah. Talk about that a little bit, like that concept of how do we build this relationship of I'm trusting you to guide me to reinforcement versus I'm trusting you to guide me versus I know you're guiding me to failure on purpose to teach me. Yeah. And, you know, I th- maybe that comes down to the learner sometimes some people like being pushed beyond their limits but you probably run into that a lot I really do run into that a lot yeah you were afraid a little challenge like sometimes you'd say are you okay that all we did was like teach you to activate this one muscle today (laughs) (laughs) and I'd always be like Liz I am beyond okay I'm like yes And every time we meet, I'm like, okay, so I was thinking we need to talk about this thing. We always have to talk about something. (laughs) You know, I think a big part of that for me is that I also have been in situations as a learner where I wasn't set up to be successful. And, you know, like I get embarrassed. I don't feel great about the whole experience. I have felt embarrassed especially if it's in a group setting or if the professional is someone that I have respect for, you know, I don't want to let them down, which is maybe something I should be talking to my therapist about, but (laughs) there there we have it. (laughs) Um, And, you know, it doesn't feel very good. So for me, I think the thing that I do really well is spend time at the beginning of the, you know, the beginning stages of getting to know someone we're working together of building trust via doing things that they are successful at and also never leaving them hanging when something gets confusing or maybe it's challenging for them or they have a different idea of what it could or you know should look like in terms of you know compa- that whole comparison thing so i really strive to help people see successes in what they're doing And also if things are challenging for them, showing them little tiny things like, you know, how you sit the weight into your feet or how you're changing your body angle. And it goes from being something that's really hard to something that's super manageable with just a few small tweaks. And I think for them, it builds a lot of trust in themselves that they are capable of it. And that's important. And then from there, you know, you get to learn what kinds of cues they respond to, how much sort of pressure they like or don't like, and then adjust from there on an individual basis. And I've found that's worked really well for me. Yeah. And you just brought something up for me that talk it when you were talking about, you know, these little minor movements, like um, shift your weight back into your heels or, or things like that. You never say to me, And for the millionth time, shift your weight back into your heels. And you never, like, you never are like irritated that I didn't think of that myself. And you are never frustrated that I didn't think of that myself. You just remind me. And so I would like to just say to every single dog trainer right now, who is coaching people to train their dogs, that if your client put their hand in the pouch before they clicked, it's because you didn't remind them not to, not because they, we're ignoring your instruction the last hundred times that you told them you have to tell people you have to just just give them the cues as long as they need the cues yeah 
this is something that I do with my dogs when I'm training them and also with people when I'm working with them. I assume 100% responsibility for what happens during my time with them. I'm sorry. Yes. Can you just say that louder for the people in the back? Who <laughs> I, you, no matter who you're training you. It is my responsibility that you, Sarah, and everyone else that I work with, everything that happens during our time together is my responsibility. All of it. If you didn't drink at the right, if you didn't have enough water, that's my fault. I didn't tell you. You're not thinking about those things. If you're not sitting your weight back in the heels, maybe it's too hard. Maybe we need to get a bit of an aid. If you're not doing this other thing here, you're not there to be your own coach. I'm there to coach you. So everything that happens during our time is my fault. And so I don't get ever get frustrated with you. It's me. I need to approach this in a different way or communicate it in a way that's really landing and for you. And if that doesn't happen, I need to think of a different way of talking to you about it. And the reason that I wanted you to restate that is that I do find in our industry, my industry, that there is a whole lot of assumption of base knowledge. Mm. So if you show up in your training with me, I'm going to assume, you know, this skill set that I'm not here to teach you because you showed up wanting to learn, I don't know, competitive obedience and right. or you wanted to learn how to heal your dog's reactive behavior. And if you show up and I assume a certain skill set, and then you show me that you don't have that skill set, go back down and show you that skill set, which is exactly what you did with me when we were first working together, you were just gathering a lot of information about what I could do, what I knew how to do, what I couldn't do. And going from there, and anytime you told me to do something and I didn't do it, this is something Megan says that I love. She says, there, she says the learner's never getting it wrong on purpose. No. And that seems so simple and, and obvious, but it's so not obvious to so many people teaching in the moment. And if you've been in dog training as long as I have, it's counter to what you were taught, actually. You were taught that you do need to correct them because otherwise they do think they can do it the other way. So here we are. We're in a teaching scenario. We said to do something or we set the learner up to do something and they don't do it. And then what you do that's brilliant is you just cue a different way. Yeah. You never repeat it. You don't say it again the same way. You don't like, I mean, you, you don't say the same thing 10 different times expecting me to do the thing that I'm not doing on that cue. Who wins in that scenario? Literally no nobody. One. The teacher is pissed no one. and frustrated. The student is pissed yeah. and frustrated. But for years, I taught, I would go and I would teach workshops and for years, I would tell people to get their hand out of their pocket. For years, they would set up to train their dog and their hand would immediately go into their vest, into their pocket, into their pouch because they wanted to have their hand on their food, ready to reward. If I trace that down to its motivation, I like the motivation. It's that I want to reward fast. I want to pay this dog. I want yeah. to be ready. Yeah. Okay, so I'm not going to correct that motivation. For years, I would just, I just, and I finally, one day, I think I was sitting on an airplane on the way home after teaching. And I was like, how many effing times did I say, get your hand out of your pocket? And how can I say that better? And, and Liz, I'm embarrassed to say it took me so long to think you're saying that too much. Hey, right. That happens. <laughs> you know, as coaches, you got to learn about that stuff too. Yeah. You know, it's a learning process, but the, what the great thing about um, what I love so much about what you do on your podcast is that you give insights, things that you've learned and have people on about things that they've learned, which hopefully kind of helps new coaches or coaches that are wanting to grow, get insight from other people so they don't have to learn it on their own. Yeah. And that's actually what's to me that's really really important that little piece of you don't actually have to be an island no you don't actually have to figure it out all on your own 
Get and a I actually boat. learned, I, I heard Hannah Brannigan tell someone, hands home. And she told them ahead of time what home position was for the hands. So she would say, you can choose it. It could be like crossed in front of your chest. It can be behind your back. It can be at your sides, but like pick a home position. And when I say hands home, that's where I want you to put your hands. And it just flipped it away from a don't do that into a do this. Mm -hmm. And it's so much better because I can just say, okay, set up hands home. And the second I see their hands drifting to their treat pouch, I can say hands home. And now it's this cue that matters to them and works. And it's like, when you tell me certain things that you have learned work, that you know that naturally, like it's going to take me several more years to access that on my own. So you just keep telling me. Yeah. Right. But every time you get better, every time we're together, you improve. And every time you bring pieces of what you learned in the last year and a half, maybe it's been a year and a half, almost It's close. Yeah. It's close. Yeah. So the last year and a half, you take chunks of what really connected with you into your session every single time. And it makes my job like now I, now I have to remember, now I have to watch you. What did you take from this? You know, maybe we could call fitness a second language. You're learning German. (laughs) I would say it basically Mm. is. Yeah. It's basically a different language. So (laughs) if you remember pieces of things and if in this language analogy perhaps you can recall pronunciations of some words and not other words then my job is to just watch you and like what did you absorb what about that was relevant for you enough that in this you know new language analogy that you took home and really sat on and now it's working for you and what other components of this piece that we're working on need to be driven home but maybe in a different way I think that's important I think it's so important and so there's this other word we use in dog training that we've said a few times now that I want to dig into which is foundation yeah so I'm constantly having clients go back to foundation and you're constantly having me go back to foundation we've been working together I don't know 14 months 15 months ish Mm -hmm. every single workout you give me has foundation skill exercises to revisit in it intentionally because you know that those are the ones that I need to go back to constantly. Yeah. Yeah, they are. So I is a strong set of foundation skills like the most important thing in strength and fitness like it is in dog training? Oh, 100%. There are basic movement patterns that you know, if you watch little kids move around, how they can squat stand up, walk upstairs, shift their weight, you know? They also sprint everywhere. There's no they walking. sprint everywhere. There's no walking. <laughs> There's sprinting, they... skipping, running backwards. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually at my parents' place while we're recording this and my nephew's six and like, good Lord, that kid moves well. <laughs> um, but you know, as, as adults, when we're going back to working on our fitness and our strength, there are definitely foundation movement patterns. And, you know, there, if people get a little bit bored with what, you know, one foundation that I'm thinking of exactly right now is a squat. So that's the part of a movement pattern that's really important and one that we use all the time. And there are components of it that we use all the time like a quarter squat would be sort of an athletic sort of ready stance. And we use that a lot during other exercises that we're doing. But if you can't shift the weight back and maintain your pelvic, your pelvic position, that whole, that whole thing is just not going to work out very well. So yeah, we return to it. And there are definitely foundation things that are really, really important uh, to understand primarily from like an efficiency standpoint, but also a safety standpoint. You're not going to be very efficient or safe if you're not able to squat properly and then we load it. And if your legs haven't developed strength with your two feet on the ground, moving to one foot on the ground too soon is just 
like counterproductive and frustrating and kind of setting you up to fail. I think you've had enough experience with that with other coaches that perhaps we could just skip that step altogether. Let's just skip it. (laughs) Yeah. Here's what I struggle with. Even with professional dog trainers, there are a lot of people who are training dogs. They're either hobbyists or they are teaching other people who have not taken it upon themselves to clean up a lot of their foundation work with themselves, like things like marker timing and reward delivery mechanics. And what I hear pretty routinely is that they just kind of can't convince themselves that it's important because they are, generally speaking, getting the job done without it. Yeah. Do you find that there are people in your field that feel like their results are good enough without doing that tedious work that they don't go do that tedious work? Oh, for sure. Right. And, but, but but then, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. Uh, Yeah. Well, you know, and then, yeah, no, that happens all the time. And I think it's a bit of a blend of maybe the coach not wanting to revisit the foundation Mm -hmm. stuff. The other piece of it that's hard to navigate arguably harder than that is that oftentimes clients don't want to revisit the foundation stuff and if they've been doing you know like let's say someone's been going to orange theory they've been going to orange theory for three or five years and they feel like they've really got it nailed down Mm. taking a learner like that in now i'm working with them to say I love that you've been working so hard. And also (laughs) we need to fix some things here can be a hard conversation and it's not always motivating. So I think there's a a piece about that as coaches, that it's important to understand how to have those kinds of conversations with clients in a way that isn't demotivating or taking any kind of power away from what they have been doing. Mm -hmm. And that's a little bit of personal touch and finesse that, you know, it just takes a lot of listening and kindness. It's a lot of kindness and compassion. Takes that trust relationship again. Like, yeah, if I trust you that what you're telling me is important, then I am going to back up and work on those skills. Yeah. You know, nine times out of 10, if somebody's struggling with a kind of performance related training issue, like uh, maybe the dog is barking in heel work or the dog is uh, missing weave pull entries or exits or something like that. Every single time I can trace it back to a hole in the foundation. And it is really frustrating to people who maybe have like uh, high level titles already on this dog to return to those, those things. Yeah. It does require some finesse and it, also requires that trusting relationship. Yes. Because otherwise, you know, they're not necessarily going to, they're, they're going to be like, yeah, well, she told me to go back and fix my, the way that I feed the dog. That's so stupid. That's not the problem. But it is. <laughs> but it basically always is. And yeah. I think that it's true. You said this earlier that like the leg up that we had was that I already understood how important foundation was. And I knew, I knew one of two things was true. I knew either the condition that I have and the body that I live in didn't get to do these things. And then I would have to kind of accept that. Or nobody had broken it down for me far enough to where I could actually begin before. I knew one of those things was true. And I was hoping it was the second one. (laughs) I was hoping that you could show me how to do the second one. So did I. (laughs) (laughs) And so because I knew that that's where we were going to have to start anyway. Yeah. I was fine. Like I, I was actually more than fine. Trust me. Like I like to lay down. Okay. So being on the mat on the ground (laughs) feels better to me than. (laughs) This is a dangerous, you're getting into dangerous territory with me. (laughs) (laughs) But you know. I have those conversations with people all the time and, you know, it just takes a little bit of conversation where I will say all of this looks really great. 
And if we can get this one area of your back to just fire a little harder, it's really going to help this whole thing come together in this way. Mm. So we're going to work on this independent of the other stuff. And then we're going to bring that into this whole movement. And let's see if that makes a really big difference. And I'm just going to give you a hint because I know that it will. (laughs) So when they do it, they're like, oh, wow, that was really helpful. And so the next time I have something to show them, hey, you know, when you're planking and your hips are rolling forward like that, it's just putting a lot of strain. Can we just try to pull and tuck and do these different things and just fix everything up so it's a little bit more active? And when they do that, it's just so much harder, but then they feel so much better better in terms of not being uncomfortable when they finish whatever they're doing. Mm-hmm. And so from there, I think like really breaking it down in a way for them that they understand is helpful. I also see this happen a lot with people that do run agility and then they send me videos and they'll say to me, these are clients fine. Hey Liz, I really want to run faster. And so I've learned over the years that that means a lot of different things to people. And they don't, you know, if they don't speak the fitness language, then running faster could mean a lot of different things. It could mean I need to run faster because I can't get out of a sun and go and get to the next obstacle. And for them, that's a very, for them, that just means I want to run faster. And for me as a coach, I'm watching all these videos going, okay, well, you know what? it's not the running fast part that's hard for you. It's the, it's the height change that you're having a hard time with. It's your body position when you're trying to get out of wherever it is that you are, or your feet are landing in a, in a, in a spot that's not serving your speed. So how can we give you one or two things to work on at a time so that all that feels a little bit more fluid. And then you can kind of build up from there. I build up from there. Yes. And this is, I mean, that directly parallels my work. Like nine times out of 10, people will say, this is what I want. And I know that they actually didn't give me any information about what they want. I have to actually dig in, find out what the true goals are. Yeah. Find out where we actually are now, where we need to get, and then we can design the path to get there. But yeah that language kind of disparity of like, I need to run faster could mean a lot of different things. It does mean a lot of different things to people. For sure. That's just another good, interesting coaching piece. When I used to teach pet dog training classes, we used to give these people a form to fill out before they came to class. And one of the questions was like, you know, what what are you hoping to get out of class? Like, what are some problems that you are facing with your dog that you'd like to fix? And like, everybody would write, everybody would write like loose leash walking. Like everybody would write the dog pulls on leash. And what that meant to at least two dogs, every single class was that they were barking and lunging at other dogs on the leash. So it wasn't really that they were just generically pulling. They were pulling towards something aggressively. Right. And we actually didn't want those dogs in those foundation level classes. We wanted those dogs in private work. (laughs) Of course you did. And so we had to like really adjust our intake questions to figure out what's really going on here. And then for some of the people, it would be actually that the dog won't leave the house and they're pulling, they're pulling on the dog to try to get them to walk with them. Right. Like this can mean so many different things to so many different people. Anybody who does behavior work will get emails that say like my dog has separation anxiety and then they have to dig in and then sometimes you find out that like actually the dog has distress about being in a crate or confinement but is fine alone actually or maybe it's literally a four-month-old puppy and you left it unsupervised in your house for eight hours when you went to work and so you came home and your house was trashed and you decided (laughs) it was separation anxiety I mean like this yeah (laughs) That's what happens. <laughs> it does. <laughs> you don't yeah. have any experience with any all of your dogs. None of your dogs have challenges. Yeah, well, no, not not one challenge. Well, my puppy just turned a year old like three or four days ago. Yes. So yeah, I just went through that whole eat your couch um to the wall sort of thing. <laughs> How come you have a crappy couch? Well, because I just can't have, nice have a things. really nice dog. 
I He's chose perfect. this beautiful dog instead of a, of a couch. Don't pet his face too much. <laughs> <laughs> Don't touch it. <laughs> oh my gosh. All right. This all started with a dismal email. <laughs> oh, Sarah. Over a year ago. And strength is not a cure for what I've got going on, but it absolutely can help and is helping. Yeah. But are there like 700 more steps that you're just not telling me about? (laughs) I have plans for you that we're not talking about right now (laughs) because they're big. And And also that path might change as it goes along. Like, you know, I think both of us are learning about what your body is and isn't capable of. And it would be super irresponsible of me to put, you know, and I hate, like, it would be really irresponsible of me to say to you as an individual, hey, Sarah, by next year, my goal for you is for you to be able to do this, whatever. And then perhaps during the year, you and I find as we are both finding what the limits of your body are. Because I don't think you know, and I don't know yet. Right. And it would be really shitty if we got to the end of the year and I said, hey, like, you're not able to do that. So we're going to have to pick something that's not so challenging or maybe doesn't seem so exciting. That would be, you know, not a great way of building confidence, enthusiasm in you, and also would be a pretty shitty experience for me too. So I got goals, girl, but they're probably going to change as time goes on. And you're just going to get the snippet as we walk this path together. (laughs) Yeah. And again, this is a coaching piece because it is your responsibility to know, to kind of have a pie in the sky goal and then make adjustments as we go. Yeah. When people show up to be coached by me, they usually do already have a goal kind of in concrete, but I help them to just to kind of put that aside and I build smaller little like places for them to go. And I say like, this exercise is is designed to help us do this. Yes. Really important for me to also tell them, but you're not there yet. Don't go try this. Yeah. Right. I do make that mistake from time to time where I, if I tell people too many steps, they will inevitably skip to step five. Every time every time yeah so you got to tell them step one see that they've achieved step one then tell them step two I agree and then if they're not achieving step two even though they did achieve step one find 1.5 yes yes or maybe 1.25 yes and when we kind of burden our learner with here's the end goal we encourage them to lump for themselves and to skip steps and then it can be too disappointing as well for them when things go off the rails like the conversation that I have with clients all the time of like you know they'll do something maybe it didn't go so hot they come back they're like this didn't go so hot I'm like that's okay let's do it this way instead they're like it's okay like, I thought it wasn't okay. I'm like, well, what do you mean it's not okay? Like, what are you going to do now? It's, it's over. <laughs> yeah, it's already done. <laughs> no point being upset now. <laughs> right. And then it's kind of none of their business what my plans are. Do you feel well, that way too? Most of the time, yeah. And I think that's like client dependent sometimes when it's mm-hmm. an individual, when I'm working with an individual, like a programming client, it depends on the person. But in like, I do this fast and agile program, which I'm so excited to tell you about. Mm -hmm. And in a fast and agile program, they get content one week at a time. And I split it all down. So I've watched hundreds of hours of agility training and trials and I've been to trials and I work with a lot of agility handlers. So I have a very thorough understanding of the gaps that are missing for people to move efficiently and to really excel. And so I break it down in a way that I make sure that the foundation stuff is covered. And I know that it's covered. So I'm not setting someone up to get hurt, or to feel like they can't do it Mm -hmm. later on in the program. 
And that's an important, that's important. And I don't tell them, they don't know what's coming. Every week, something new comes out. Every week it builds on the last one and they keep working at it. And it all kind of just pulls together as time goes on. And it's a very cool, it's a very cool experience if you haven't had that happen to you before in a coaching setting. And I love it when coaches train me like that. And I strive to do that for other people too. Yes. It's kind of like, I want to train dogs like that. I want them to, to arrive at the conclusion that I have been leading them to. Yeah. I also teach smoothly. I teach people that way when it's an intellectual kind of coaching situation and not a tangible skill coaching situation. So meaning I want them to understand something on an intellectual level that I'm trying to teach them. And I will ask them questions and the right questions until they arrive at the conclusion that I was trying to get them to in the first place. So I know what the conclusion is. And if I just show up and tell them the conclusion, then they may not have the true understanding of that conclusion that I want them to have. And I feel like this is exactly the same. Like I can say to Megan, this is my agility goal for Rhea. And then she goes, all right, sweet. Now that I know what we're talking about, let's get to work. And then we go, and then we don't even talk about that goal. That's not even, because it's nowhere near where we are right now. Yeah. Instead, she just allows it to inform her as a coach as we go. Yeah. So I think, yes, they can, our, our students can and should have kind of that desire in their head of what they want to get to. And then you should know what that desire is. Yeah. And then all the little in-between pieces are not their business. They're yours. It's your responsibility, not theirs. Yes. And also, as much as it's a collaborative effort, I'm not in this role with them to be told how to help the best. That's why they hired me. And I'm sure that's why people hire you too. So our job is to like take the things that aren't working well for them and take that in and use our skill set to bridge the gap or break it down or change directions or adapt in any way we need to. So that what they want long-term is being served by what they're doing now. And one little, I'm going rogue. I'm going off script. I have one little question Uh for you. I'm ready. (laughs) I think. (laughs) I say little question. Let's say that your student came to you. Let's say that I came to you and I, I can't even put it in phrase. I can't even say that it's me because it'll just be funny, but. (laughs) Okay. We're going to pretend you're Megan. Let's say somebody comes, yeah, <laughs> pretend I'm Megan. Somebody comes to you and they say, I want to do this. How do I do that? And it's some, you know, that it is like a PhD level fitness goal that they're asking for, but they don't know that. Mm-hmm. So like, this is the thing is that I'm so ignorant about all of this that I can't even tell you a goal, but I'm saying, That's fine. Like, I don't know, compete in an Ironman competition. Okay. Or maybe even like win or like, they come to like, I come to you and I'm like, there's an Ironman this weekend. I went ahead and signed up. Can you tell me how to do that? Right. And you'd be like, Whoa, like this is like, (laughs) that is PhD level stuff. And you're still in like, I don't know, first grade, second grade. (laughs) Like we're learning counting because I will get that. And this is the examples. When I teach my shaping class, people are still learning how to deliver food. They're still learning how to break behavior down into core skills. They are still learning how to put a cue on a behavior. Like they are in kindergarten and they say, how do I get duration on this behavior? And I consider duration, like maybe a high school level skill. And it inevitably happens. They go, okay, so I acquired the skill. Now, how do I get duration on it? And when they say duration, they mean stillness. They mean perfect stillness on the behavior, not just the dog will remain in a down position for a minute. And I know how high level skill that is and they don't. And that's why they're asking about it. Right. Does this happen to you? All the time. How do you, you're, you're teaching me now. How do you handle it? (laughs) (laughs) I am. Okay. (laughs) Did I also just, if I asked how to handle that and you're like, well, that's also a PhD question. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Let me just take four years to figure this out. Right. Um, (laughs) Well, 
how I normally handle it is I try to pick several and depending how PhD it is and also what grade they're in, in this analogy, Mm. I, I pick intermediary goals for them. Okay. That feel a little bit like that maybe would sub for what they're wanting to do that in my head will help them stay motivated to keep working towards what they want. No, like I know that that's really long ways away. There's a, there's always exciting things that are happening in the in-betweens. And I think that's like everywhere in life, but when you're training in things, it's like, there's beautiful things that happen in the in-betweens. And I think that highlighting that, having conversations about that regularly And then hitting those intermediary goals helps people see that what they're building towards is happening. And it's maybe just happening at a slower pace than they think. And in my experience, the slower pace things when they are achieved, is like even more exciting because it's just so much work that went into it. So that's how I kind of do it. Yeah, we're back to maintain success for the student, point out their success, celebrate their success. Yeah, it's huge. When they when they say, "Well, this is what I want to do," you say, "All right, cool. Let's set up some some goals towards that because we aren't yeah. there." Yet. I don't even think I would say that we're not. I just feel like sometimes you wouldn't say we're not there yet. Yeah, I wouldn't. Yeah. Ever, yeah, I wouldn't say that. I feel like fitness has this kind of you know. Anytime people are learners, it's a vulnerable position, and fitness yeah, is ex- extra that way. It's like there's a lot of there's a lot of big feelings about bodies sometimes. <laughs> so anything about, you like, don't I really, say. you don't I really say. <laughs> watch my language. I have to really be careful and, you know, less is more Liz, less is more. So I, I don't know that I would say we're not there yet, but I would say without saying that, that is a really great goal. I totally think you can do that and to build up to it, you know, if it was an Ironman competition, I would say there's a lot of pressure on race day. And there's a lot of things that go in between that are going to need to go on in between now and then. So let's pick a sprint triathlon for you to do so you can experience the transitions and things that go on and maybe the discomfort of wearing a wet swimsuit while you bike and run and like <laughs> how to time your eating. And there are a lot of skills that are going to go into and experience that are going to go into you having a successful Ironman that we need to learn. So let's start here and we'll learn those skills here. And then the next one will be a full triathlon. And let's do a few of those so you can get all of that's really smooth. And then we'll do this piece. And if during that time of training for the sprint or the triathlon, we find that maybe there's room to grow in your biking, then perhaps we'll send you to a spin studio or on into a biking club so you can figure out that component so the rest of it comes together really well. Or maybe we find during that time that like your footwear isn't working for you or something along those lines. Those things are going to really lead to you having success and feeling great on race day in Ironman or not. And we need to figure that stuff out now so that you have a really great time doing this goal because it's not just about the goal. It's about the whole day and just like the whole experience of it. Let's make that as shiny and special as we can. Fantastic. I feel like, yes, you, once again, it's about splitting. And once yeah. again, it's about making sure that all the foundation pieces are there. I love this conversation because it's giving me so much like way better language around what I just know how to do. Right. And then also really good to be talking to other coaches and how it's really cool for me to talk to a coach in a different field and find that everything is the same. Yeah. That really good coaching is really good coaching and it's all the same stuff all the time. Yeah. So to wrap us up, you have really exciting stuff. You mentioned your fast and agile course. Talk about that. What do you have? Tell us the dog sport <laughs> handlers of the internet are listening. What do you have in store? <laughs> well, I have fast and agile that's out now. And 2022 is going to see three intakes this summer. Well, 
in North America summer, one mid-May and then again mid-July and again mid-September. So we've got a few intakes and then I'll be doing a round of them in the winter as well. And the course is a 12-week course. And in the course, like we talked about earlier, every week, the skill set is built on the one that was developed the week before. Mm-hmm. And in, in an effort, you know, in my experience, a lot of fitness programs really do just ask too much time of people. Mm-hmm. And it gets to be too, it's just too much. And like, listen, I have a dog. I know that they take a lot of time. So the workouts are 20 to 30 minutes long. And there's like two to do a week for sure. And one optional one, if you, if you're not already having like an established cardiovascular routine, like hiking or swimming or biking or whatever that is for you. And it's a really great course. We have this amazing thriving Facebook group and you're on it, Sarah. And it's super fun. I was going to say the Facebook group alone (laughs) is really worth a lot. People are really supportive of each other. They're, they're laughing. They're like, there's no huge egos going on. It's super supportive, really fun. Yeah. And it's, it really is targeted at agility handlers. Like that's why it's called fast and agile, but it's not for only agility. Like if you're not doing agility, you can still benefit here. Well, the other thing that I love about it is that a lot of people, if you're not doing sports that require you on a regular basis to push your human skill set, moving your feet quickly or working, building or maintaining fast switch muscle fiber like that that those abilities do go away. Mm. And as people age, that inability to fire muscles quickly, you know, leads to tripping and not so fun stuff. So I love that on a human level, it serves the people in their sport, but also serves them in their life on a long-term basis. Mm. And I feel like that really sets them up for success in their life. And that's important to me too, as a human, as a person with parents that are aging, things like that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that's important to me. So the, the program is really well laid out. And I know that there are several grades of, you know, like we were talking about earlier, kindergarten to PhD levels, and there's variations of things all throughout the whole program. And there are people of all different fitness levels. And I, I guess I view my job there as like holding space for people when they feel vulnerable and encouraging them to like believe in themselves. Mm-hmm. And it's happening in this class. And it's really, really, it's amazing to see. It's really amazing to see. Later this summer, I am going to be releasing a course called Power for the Course, which is strength training that directly translates to agility movements. And that's going to be a really great course too. I'm excited about that. And that's the kind of work you know, once we got some of my muscles firing that had been asleep for approximately 25 years, that's a lot of the work that we've done like together is improving my strength and certainly for my life, but also it's made an enormous difference in my ability to do dog agility. Oh, huge. I think anybody who looks at like my agility videos from like 2019 versus now, there's an enormous difference in what I can physically do. And it didn't involve, honestly, that didn't even involve sprinting. That involves strength and coordination. So if you're like, I don't like running, fine. Wait for power for the course. (laughs) Do that. (laughs) I do have bad news for you. Agility is a running sport, but (laughs) I know there's plenty of people who literally only run on the off the start line and they stop the second they ha- they are able to and they leash the dog and they leave and like and then they don't run again until the next run and it is a 30 second running situation and that's what they're doing and like whatever i listen i said listen I, running i actually would love to go back to being a distance runner i used to be and i don't think that's accessible for me but being able to sprint better in agility and also get out of those send and goes out of those turns. Mm-hmm. If you've ever become disoriented on a front cross, this will help you. I mean, like all of that stuff is really important. Well, the other thing that is really amazing about having stronger muscles is that 
all of those things that you're doing on course are suddenly so much easier for your body. And when they're easier for your body, you don't have to burn so much energy to execute the, the movement or the speed that you're trying to get. And not having to use so much energy means that you don't have to breathe so hard. So even if you're just doing strength training and it's appropriate and you're getting stronger and it feels good, even if you're not doing cardiovascular work, you're going to be better on course. Your heart's going to be stronger. All that stuff just comes together and it's just less effortful and also safer. And I set it all up in a way of like with the, the in this power for the course class that will be coming out. I set it up in a way just like I did in fast and agile so that people are learning and drilling over and over and over and over again till they just nail it. The components that I see as the most common fail points for handlers on course. And, and you did so much information gathering to find those points of failure. This is not, you didn't make this up. Like I would just like to state for everyone to know that you are aware of what's hard about running an agility course. Yeah. And, you know, I have gotten a little bit of flack because I'm not an agility handler. Don't compete in agility. And I may have been hinting at that just now. Okay, thanks. Here's the thing though. Y'all, like, listen up. This is the same with agility training as well. You do need to understand the sport, but you do not need to be like a world level competitor to coach a person as long as you understand the sport well, and as long as you are a good coach. So for me, my criteria isn't necessarily that you're in the sport. My criteria is, are you a good coach? And do you actually understand what you need to coach? And if you've met those two things, I don't care as much about the rest. And also, yes, I agree with you. There's also this component of like, if you were driving a car, in Formula One race, in your transmission blue, okay? In this, like, who would you want fixing your transmission? One of the other drivers? No. A driver? Or maybe you want the engineer and the mechanical team to take a look at what failed and how can they possibly make it better? And I couldn't have said it better. You are the mechanical. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. my understanding of how people move and the mechanics of the different things that go on. Like I watch agility handlers and I see different things of like when they're trying to do ascend and go, their torso is going too far towards the obstacle and that's slowing their ability down to get out of there because they have so much momentum now to shift the other way. So how can I make that piece of it smoother without needing to necessarily tell them that? So yeah, very carefully designed and I have been working on it and studying agility movement patterns and going to trials, like I said, and watching videos. And I've been coaching agility handlers too for quite a few years, maybe even four Mm -hmm. or five years now. Mm -hmm. So I see with the experience, what works, what didn't work, and then how to keep all of that stuff tying back into what all of us dog people really prioritize in our life, which is our like, let's just level it's our dogs. <laughs> Which is our dogs. And also like, let's, can we just go run agility? Instead? Can we just go play outside and spend as little time doing this stuff as possible and also still get really great at it and have it be a rewarding and fun experience, which really like, if I can bring some of that to people's lives, I feel like that's really important. That that would be, that means a lot to me. So Liz, where do people find you? Well, Sarah. I have a website. It's caninehandlerfitness.com. And the canine is not the K and the nine. It's spelled out. And I'm also super happy to have friend requests on Facebook. I don't currently have a business Facebook page. And the Fast and Agile page is just for people that have taken the class. And I am also on Instagram. My handle is caninehandlerfitness. And if you're looking to have your Instagram blown up with really great stuff, I might not be the best follow, but I'm there. (laughs) And uh, yeah, I think Facebook's probably the best place to find me. Excellent. Liz, thank you so much for this conversation. I think it was great. Mm, Thanks so much for having me, Sarah. 
Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe and leave me a review. If you'd like to support this podcast, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio. You might even hear me answer your question on the show. For more content like the stuff you heard here, check out my online courses at cog-dog-classroom.teachable.com. 